Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative, and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at www.nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Nakubo in Brief. My name is Megan Strand. Thanks so much for listening. The Department of Education has new rules out related to cash management at colleges and universities. Some of those rules were developed after critics raised concerns about agreements that a number of schools have with financial institutions to provide accounts to students and specifically relate to the disbursement of federal student aid. On today's podcast, we're going to dig into that history that led to the development of these new cash management regulations. And I am pleased to be joined today by Ann Gross. Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at Nakubo, as well as Joan Piscatello, Treasurer at Iowa State. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hi. And can you start out by telling us why colleges and universities have these arrangements with banks and third-party financial partners? It largely stems from trying to provide better services to students, more effective processes, and to be more efficient in dealings with students. Students want to use their debit cards. They want electronic transmission of money to them. They want to be part of the financial world. But many of them come to campus without accounts. And so you you can't start providing electronic banking services and giving them money electronically if they don't have a bank account to put it into. And many students just don't come without them for a variety of reasons. Sometimes their age, sometimes they have trouble getting an account because of past histories. So there's a number of reasons why students may show up on campus without a bank account already. So in the effort to to bring them into today's world um, and as full participants in our economy, we want to help them most conveniently have those services available to them. And I understand there's been a little bit of confusion about the difference between arrangements that involve the processing of credit balance refunds and other bank relationships. Can you explain the difference and why it's so important for us to understand? There's really two distinct types of arrangements, and they're coming from totally different places in the university. So one is the kind of relationship where I think of it more as a sponsored bank account, where it's usually coming from the card office at the um, institution. A lot of schools have um, campus cards that can be used um, in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. The students like to be able to connect that card with a bank account. And so there's either there or at another place in the institution, they have looked for bank partners who, among other parts of the relationship, will provide student bank accounts that can be connected to the campus card. The other type is when the the school is looking for help in making payments to students. So they're looking um, for assistance in that whole process of finding out where a student wants their money to go and then collecting the necessary information about people's bank accounts. And at the same time, maybe offering them a debit card account or a checking account in connection with those services so that they have an account 
to put money into if they don't come with one already. So that's more of a vendor relationship Mm -hmm. where they're actually acting as agent of the school to help these processes. And one of the prime reasons schools do that is to help with workload at peak times. Also for information security that a lot of schools don't want to collect everyone's bank account information and have it in their database. Joan, does Iowa State University have any of these arrangements? We would have the the first arrangement that Ann discussed, uh, and it's referenced in the the new cash management regulations, is a T2 relationship. Uh, We have a bank account associated with the ID card, and it's an optional account that students can choose to open at any time. And it's separate from the choice of which financial institution that they want their student refund to go to. Concerns with these types of relationships emerged in about 2012. Can you tell us a little bit about the criticism? I tie a lot of this back to some of the concerns that arose in 2006, 2007 about private student loans and about um, schools directing students who wanted to borrow money either under the federal fell loan program or private loans to certain banks. Um, And there were a lot of allegations that schools were getting money back from the banks for steering customers their way. Uh, regulations went into effect later to um, stop that. There was also concern in the past much earlier about affinity credit cards and whether those were really the best deal for students, though most of them actually weren't marketed to students as the primary recipient of marketing. It was really to, to alumni, I think, mostly and often through the alumni office. And that eventually ended up in legislation as well. So I, I see this as a, a combination of unhappiness with banks and certainly unhappiness with the relationship between banks and um, institutions of, of higher education. Uh, the concerns, you know, the, the grumbling, the concerns, you know, was coming from uh, just a few campuses at first, but it's partly that these relationships started to build as more people were using electronic banking and debit cards um, came into being and you could have electronic bank accounts there were a lot of of, uh, opportunities that didn't exist in the past. Um, So there were concerns that came at a few campuses that students weren't being treated fairly, that these weren't good deals for them, that the schools were were making money or saving money they shouldn't be saving, um, and were at the expense of students who were paying high bank fees, getting charged for overdrafts, etc. So in May 2012, uh, the public, U.S. Public Interest Research Group, PERG, issued a report called Campus Debit Card Trap um, in conjunction with a Department of Education hearing, which originally was supposed to be focused on fraud in higher student aid fraud in higher education. Um, and they claimed in this report that, that banks and schools were taking advantage of students. They were charging them unfair fees and using up their federal aid or bank fees instead of for the things that they needed for their education. Joan, did you hear these concerns at Iowa State? No, we did not. In fact, we had this relationship since 1996. And again, our the bank relationship associated with the ID card, totally separate from the disbursement of refunds. Uh, we issued a request for proposal. We um, chose a bank that offered free checking as long as students, you know, went to their ATM 
that bank's ATM. They Mm -hmm. would have free ATM services. And it was an optional service. We really had um, no concerns that were stated from students at Iowa State. And how did Nakubo respond to those concerns? Very seriously. Uh, We never like anything that that, uh, seems to insinuate that colleges are acting in their own interest and not in the interest of their students. And we didn't believe that to be the case. Our Student Financial Services Council, which is a group of uh, bursars and student financial services administrators from a number of institutions, uh, advised us and got together. And we developed a um, guidance for our members, obviously voluntary, of 10 steps that we thought that they should take when they're entering into these contracts and things that they should make sure to do, such as to make sure students I have a number of choices. We also believe, though, that they should encourage electronic refunds to students because we think they're safer and they're faster and they're more convenient for everybody involved. You know, the number one thing was that students need to be first as schools are are negotiating these contracts and they need to think about their interests in front and hopefully involve them in choosing what services to offer. Joan, even though you didn't have student complaints per se, did you find those recommendations helpful to Iowa State? Well, I think it just confirmed that what we were doing was doing the right thing. Sure. It's always good to hear uh, best practices of what maybe uh, processes we could improve to do it better. So I think it was helpful to see those recommendations. And I think that uh, other universities, uh, if they weren't already doing their processes in that manner, found it very helpful to, to have these these best practices given to them. And the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau also became interested in this issue in 2013 and hosted a roundtable and put out a call for information. Is that something that Nakubo participated in? We did. We filed extensive comments with CFPB sharing data that we had collected from our members on some of these arrangements and how many schools were participating in them. I also testified at their roundtable or forum that that they held. Um, There weren't really many representatives of of institutions uh, there. There were just a couple of us um, or of some of the major firms in this area. The the one firm who was there representing the industry doesn't actually offer um, any accounts. Um, There were a couple of bankers there as well. I'm not sure how useful it was. Um, A lot of information got on the table. Uh, One participant was someone from the Attorney General's office in New York, which had been the lead instigator of all the concerns about the private student loans. Um, So that was interesting at all the parallels that she drew to uh, this situation. Ultimately, the Department of Education began a rulemaking process impacting these relationships. And Joan, you were on the negotiated rulemaking panel. Can you describe what that process was like? Well, in one word, I would say it was challenging. (laughs) Uh, There were many representatives at the table. The students were, were representative. Consumer advocacy groups were represented. Financial aid administrators, financial institutions. And I actually represented business officers and bursars at post-secondary institutions. I think it, it was because we were all coming to this topic from from different angles, um, it, there was a lot of education that needed to be done on the behalf of universities. Um, I don't believe, as Ann said, that um, some of the constituents at the, the table really believed that universities were keeping students first. We all had good intentions at the table. We were all there to protect students and to provide the best services that we could 
to universities, but we were coming at it from, from different angles. You know, the universities were looking to to keep the choices that we were offering to students while also pro- keeping the efficiencies and uh, for the university. We, were, we met for four months um, wow. to try to come to consensus on this. A lot of effort went into trying to come to consensus and, and writing up rules that everyone could live with. And what was the outcome? The outcome was we didn't come to consensus on the rulemaking. And at that point, the rules went back to the Department of Education, and they took into consideration the comments made by each of the negotiators, and they drafted uh, rules that then came out for um, others for us to make comments on, and then we were allowed to make comments, send it back to the Department of Education, and they have now come out with the the final rules that we need to comply with. And maybe you can explain to us the goal of consensus as it relates to negotiated rulemaking. Sounds like it's a tough process. It is. It always is because deliberately the table has everybody with opposing views around sitting around it. The other thing that becomes challenging is this was not the only topic on the agenda for that negotiated rulemaking team. There were five or six topics altogether some others which like state authorization for distance education were also quite contentious so there were two or three issues on the table that the group could come to agreement on and we did but the way the rules of the process go the group has to agree on all of the issues on the agenda in order for there to be an agreement that is then binding on the department of education Um, binding in that if a group comes to consensus the department of education is bound to propose the rules that the group agreed upon Um, in this case we were quite far away on both this topic and um, the state authorization topics. So there there wasn't, in the end, really m- much of a hope that we were going to come to consensus and do something that would be binding on the Department of Education. And the final rules come out a year and a half after those negotiations ended. So what took so long in that process? The problem was usually the department tries to time things so that they do the negotiations in the winter and spring. Then they have a few months to pull together their notice of proposed rulemaking. There's time for comment, like Joan said, um, and then they can get the final rules out under what are known as the master calendar provisions of the Higher Education Act, the Department of Education needs to put final rules out by November 1st in order for them to take effect the following July at the start of the next award year. Um, That provision is in there because colleges have said, hey, we can't implement new things and change our systems and our processes in two months' time. We need a good lead time to make these changes. So I I am completely in favor of that kind of of, lead time. Uh, What happened in this year is besides this negotiated rulemaking, which, as I said, covered a number of topics, they also had, were running another negotiated rulemaking concurrently on another very contentious topic on gainful employment regulations. And they had several other things in the hopper. So really when it came down to was they looked at everything that was on their plate for that period from, you know, early summer, um, through when they needed to get proposed rules out and then final rules out and decided that they just couldn't couldn't bite it all off. They weren't going to get that all done in time for the November 1st deadline. So, so the way the master calendar works, if they miss one November 1st deadline, then 
any rules that come out after that are not going to take effect until the July after the next November 1st. So once they couldn't make the November 1st, 2014 deadline, it didn't matter as long as they made the November 1st, 2015 deadline. So that's what delayed the whole process. Can you talk a little bit about how people can find out more about the new rules? We have lots of information and we're putting up more um, in the next few days on the Nakubo website, including links to the rules. We have developed a chart that shows you which types of arrangements are subject to which requirements. Um, we have a flowchart that we will be updating shortly um, that helps schools determine under the rules whether they have what's known as a tier one or a tier two type arrangement or neither. On Wednesday, November 18th, we're going to do a webcast. Um, if people don't make it at that time, it will be archived and again available on our website at www w.nakubo.org. I think that this webinar that uh, Nakubo is uh, putting on next week would be very helpful uh, for people to participate in, and then it would also give them an opportunity to ask questions uh, that they may have regarding these rules that maybe Anne and I will be able to answer that time. Well, thank you so much for giving us this preview, Joan and Anne, and for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. You can find out more about today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org. Make sure you do subscribe to Nakubo in brief in iTunes so you'll get your latest episode instantly. And on behalf of Joan and Anne and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this episode of Nakubo in Brief. Nakubo in Brief.